The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You're listening to the Bay to Bay Network. <laughs> cool beaners, cool beaners. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen, and others, Woo-hoo! or uh, undecided? <laughs> <laughs> I hope everyone's doing well and keeping warm. I know out here on the East Coast, it's been especially cold. Um, our family uh, have just got over the vid. That's right. We uh, have survived evolution. Um, <laughs> my uh, mother-in-law's family, apparently, or mother-in-law and husband and stuff came down with it and tested positive a few weeks back. And so we were like, oh, no, because one or two days out of the week, uh, they normally babysit our kids. And so immediately went and got tested and test results came back. Elizabeth was negative, but all all the kids came back positive. Um and naturally, I didn't have time to get tested or did not get tested. But last week, I definitely was sick. Don't know if it was COVID. Probably was. Either way, I was exposed. But we feel great this week. So it's kind of like we got our vaccination. You know, we survived evolution. Congratulations. So hope everyone's doing well and doing better than that, at least maybe out there. Um, hope everyone got their second stimulus checks. I know people were waiting for a while. Our family was. And... uh so that was fun. Looking forward to see what this new socialist government everybody keeps talking about looks like. <laughs> um, but I am interested. Have you been listening to good podcasts lately other than Fade to Grey? I mean, I know Movies That Molded Me hasn't been putting out anything in a while. So what have you been listening to? Oh, man. I, I know. I, and I, I know, listeners, that you're just so excited for another Movies That Molded Me episode. And I promise you're going to get one. You're going to get one. Uh, Keith Giles wants to come on and do science movies or sci-fi movies. So that'll be fun. And uh, Renee wants to come on and do action movies. I don't know so much about Renee, though, man. Can people understand him? Anyway. Maybe we'll just have uh, Toby come on instead, his son. <laughs> he probably speaks better English at this point. So I would imagine so. Uh, as far as podcasts go, I do listen to a lot of movie podcasts, uh, and there's a couple of great podcasts. One that I've actually been on, uh, we actually had them on movies that molded me would be facing off podcast. Uh, they just added a new host, uh, and you know, they, they take two movies that are kind of similar and they, uh, talk about them, they rate them. And then they, of course, give them a score kind of like we do, except for, uh, in this case it's just two movies. Uh, and then they, you know, say which one is obviously the better movie after that. And then another podcast I listen to is another movie podcast, obviously, uh, and it's called Quantum Recast. And we actually had Corey from the Quantum Recast on Movies That Molded Me uh, on the first two episodes of that. So uh, he's got a great podcast over there where they take a movie uh, and they actually uh, change the date 
of the of the release of the movie and then they recast it with people from that date. So for example, uh recently they took uh Tombstone and then they recasted it as if it were a movie that came out in 1979. So that was a pretty interesting one. And then they've also taken like older movies and brought them to the future and whatnot. So an interesting movie podcast uh that's pretty entertaining and absolutely infuriating because they really don't know what they're talking about over there, but it's a lot of fun anyway. So Check those out. Yeah, those are fun suggestions. I definitely remember those guys, uh, both Corey and uh, was it Nick? And what were the guys' names from Facing Off Podcast? Um, Nick and Gabe. Nick and Gabe. I remember Nick because Nick Cage, you know, and Facing Off, you know, so it was <laughs> do the word association there. But yeah, those those are fun guys. Um, I got a couple suggestions. These are not friends of mine or people that have been on the show yet. Um, but people that I would love to talk to, um, I found a podcast called the seven deadly sinners. Um, the host is, uh, Rachel O'Brien. And I found this podcast through the morbid network and the morbid network was started by the morbid podcast. And, um, that's another podcast. That's a lot of fun. If you're into true crime or, um, anything paranormal, it's, Two girls kind of grew up as sisters, whole lot of fun, Ash and Elena. Um, and so shout out to them, trying to get them on the podcast, let them tell their story. But um, I found Seven Deadly Sinners, and it's a little bit more maybe up the alley of Faye de Grey, if you're into deconstruction and faith and all the sinister things behind the evangelical movement or just any sort of people who are... Um, have abused power um, in, in, in the past and uh, people like uh, uh, Jimmy Swaggered or people like uh, one of the stories that really stuck out to me because growing up in Charlotte, North Carolina uh, was Jim and Tammy Faye Baker's story. Uh, I found that really fascinating. That was like a three part series. Um, but yeah, seven deadly sinners. She goes through like all the seven deadly sins and whether it be wrath or lust or greed and and ties it into a story of um somebody who really took advantage of that and ended up either um it's something you have to have a stomach for elizabeth is currently like listening to the podcast right now and she's like it's messing me up babe i just can't do it um but it really is kind of a look behind the scenes of kind of a lot of these iconic figures that we've had in um for me it's you know christianity obviously and and how uh, they lied and cheated to basically keep this machine going. And um, it's obvious that it's time for a change. Anyway, so very well done podcast. Uh, Rachel O'Brien, check that out. My favorite episode of that one was whenever the uh, the murderer put the head in the box. Yeah, okay. That's uh, Seven <laughs> Deadly Sins with uh, also a very good movie. Another movie reference. We'll see what... Uh, <laughs> Chris has been doing during What's his quarantine. Box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What a great movie. Um, okay. And then another podcast recommendation that I've been listening to just this today, basically, is The Holy Post. It's a podcast I listened to a few years back when it was the Phil Vischer show. Phil Vischer, if you recognize that name at all, he is the voice for a lot of the VeggieTale characters like Paw Grape and... Um, some other iconic ones I can't remember at, at this moment doesn't really matter. Um, but the Holy Bob, the tomato, <laughs> I don't, he might've been Bob. He could have been, um, but, uh, 
a lot of the uh, so it's himself, Sky Jatani, and Christian Taylor as his co-host. And um, very recently, they have been talking a lot about um, the insurrection that happened at the Capitol, um, the Christian insurrection, and um, what MAGA and Q and all the different stuff has done uh basically to christianity and how susceptible uh, evangelicals are to conspiracy theories now and you add on the prophecies or the false prophets i like to call them um he got called a lot of people out by name who i have also been uh, watching closely like lance walnall or the bill johnson's and uh, mike bickles people that um i guess it's called an independent prophetic movement or something like that. And all these people who really latched onto Trump and are more into commerce or capitalism Bastards. and have, you know, really yet to really apologize or admit any sort of wrong and just become spin doctors and able to continue to spin the narrative. If you want to call me, maybe just go ahead so, now. Um, but yeah, so they recently have been really kind of deep diving into that. So that's been fun for me because it's been a uh, soapbox. I personally have been on with some, some pastors in my own life, um, just through Facebook, just call, trying to call them out say, Hey, you know, what makes a false prophet, like a prophet that like continuously, you know, like is wrong. And then also is lifting up, a man who clearly, anyway, I'm not going to get into it. That's not why you guys are here. Well, I mean, like, why in the world would a pastor who is supposed to be preaching the good news of the gospel be worrying about talking about politics from the pulpit? Like, that seems antithetical to what your mission is. Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And you're up here talking about Trump and a stolen election from the pulpit. Well, they've been doing it since Reagan, really, honestly, if you think about where the whole major evangelical movement thing happened and actually they pointed out something that was interested in one of the epi- interesting in one of the episodes recently about the cold war and about like what actually changed for america and american christianity and stuff like post cold war and like listening a lot of stuff back to like the 20s even for when things really started coming off the rails for for us here in the states and so it's um it's interesting because that's where we went with capitalism so hard and pushed away everything that was remotely socialist supposedly and uh, because of the commies but and it has worked for a while and but at what cost sort of thing so and was it done to our like was it done to Christianity too is is the whole other thing is because now it's been now linked to it all anyway so Rick Allen Ross we actually do talk a little bit um with him about the MAGA supporters, because I believe when the interview first happened, it was like the week of the insurrection. So, um, and he had some pretty insightful things to say. So hope you guys enjoy this interview as much as we did. We invite people of all backgrounds to share their stories, their nuanced conversations and forward thinking and not taking ourselves too seriously. Everyone's story matters. Every voice is important. Life is polarizing. But not everything is black and white. Come join us as we fade to gray. What is up, fade to gray family? We have a very special episode 
today we've got on for the second time. Uh, you could actually go back and listen to him the first time around. Uh, that was Fade Degree episode 102, uh, which we did live from our big tent revival back in May of 2020. That was a blast. Uh, Rick Allen Ross, uh, who is the director of the Colt Institute, uh, author of Colts Inside Out, How People Got In and Got Out. Uh, we are super excited to talk to him today. And Rick, I got to say, over the Christmas break, I really didn't do a whole lot of uh, anything except for watch a bunch of cult uh, documentaries on uh, HBO Max and Netflix and all that stuff. And, and uh, you, you came up uh, a couple of times, actually, on some of the stuff that I was watching. And so uh, I was talking to Omar about it. He's like, let's just get him back on to talk about all this stuff. And I'm like, yes, please, let's do it. So, Rick, uh, welcome back. We're, we're super stoked to have you. Hey, it's great to be back. Thanks. Yeah. And, um, you know, one thing that we were really wanting to talk about, you know, aside from uh, the established cults like Nexium and Heaven's Gate and all that stuff, because last time we spoke a lot about the Branch Davidians and, and stuff, but there's been some recent, uh, I guess, developments in uh, this nation that uh, has led to possibly some cult-like uh, behavior. The cult of Trump. Uh, <laughs> right. Hell, orange Jesus. <laughs> uh, with all of the, uh, the news, of course, of the riots, the riots at the Capitol, uh, was that just last week? Yeah, or, it, no, was. It, was, it was. It was Wednesday. the week before was, last, right? Was it? So, yeah. It was the sixth. Yeah. So um, you have all these people, uh, of course, that are, they seem to be radicalized. Um, and so we kind of wanted to just, talk to you a little bit about that. What do you think about all that? Uh, and is Trumpism becoming a cult? Well, you know, Chris, uh, when Donald Trump had his acceptance speech at the Republican convention, I thought to myself, when he said, I alone can fix this, uh, implying that he was like some kind of messianic figure that could resolve all the problems in the country. I thought that was kind of cult leaderish. Uh, in a sense. But I think what's really important is to not abuse the word cult or diminish, dim, it, because if we apply it to everybody and we just say, hey, we don't like you, you're a cult. Uh, and if we do that in politics in particular, because there are people on the right who say, well, you know, those people that loved Obama are a cult. Uh, the Bernie bros are a cult. And then on the, on the left, they say, well, Trump is a cult leader. But let's really get down to the nitty gritty, the core characteristics of a cult. Let's get to the nitty gritty. <laughs> Thank you, Omar. The nitty gritty. <laughs> and the nitty gritty, the nitty gritty is that you don't elect a cult leader and a cult leader cannot be impeached and a cult leader doesn't run for reelection and a cult leader does not have his or her followers in a democratic process like that. Cult leaders are absolute authoritarian, and uh, they don't run for election like Donald Trump. Another thing is that cult leaders, uh, this we use this word a lot, brainwash their followers. And I, I, I think that Donald Trump recognized that there was a large following in the Republican Party that had certain ideas and feelings about the change, changing uh changes in American life, uh, the changing demographics, immigration, etc. And he focused on that. Uh, they came to the table with their beliefs already uh, innately there. Uh, Donald Trump simply focused and capitalized on those beliefs to pull together 
really in many ways disparate groups. For example, at the Capitol, you saw different groups like white supremacists, militia groups, very religious people uh, from fundamentalist Christian churches, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so they have different beliefs. When you're in a cult, the cult says, hey, you know what? We're the only truth. And all the other groups are wrong. Our leader is right. And they have a very specific doctrine that they're pushing. Uh, you don't see that with Trumpers. Uh, they gathered together in Washington, and uh, they they were unified in their contempt for the election and the democratic process, and their and they did support Donald Trump, but they were coming from different places. So what I don't see is the two key characteristics of a destructive cult, which is an absolute authoritarian leader that has no meaningful accountability. Uh, and number two, that that leader uses coercive persuasion and uh, thought reform techniques to basically dominate, manipulate, and gain undue influence over his or her followers. I don't think Donald Trump really understands thought reform, and he's not implementing it, in my, in my opinion. Okay, well, that's, that's a good answer. But what about like nationalism or the whole uh, patriotic Christianity. I mean, I feel like that, like if you tie like those groups in, the one thing I can say that ties them all together is this idea of nationalism. And then we have this whole thing that's come up of like being a patriot, quote unquote. And so, and, and that's been tied into religion. Um, is that in danger of going into the cult area? Well, I think you can see cultic aspects, Omar, in uh, different things that, uh, are expressed through these groups. For example, cognitive dissonance. So if the le leader or leaders of these various factions within uh, the far right make a prediction and that prediction doesn't come true, like for example, that Donald Trump will be reelected, uh, they go into cognitive dissonance, which is that when their belief is contradicted, uh, the leaders give them a spin on it, the election was rigged, uh, uh, it was stolen, they accept that, then they reinforce each other in that belief within their kind of social media and online information bubbles. But uh, even that statement alone makes makes their God that they're claiming like less powerful if somehow the Democratic Party can like overthrow God's plan, then how powerful is their God? And it, it doesn't that... Uh, very definition of a false prophet or some sort of like a wayward leader wow. that's going to like make state statements like that that don't come true. I don't know. Uh, Omar in the cult business, you just spin. So, so if you're, if you're a cult leader or a would be prophet and your prophecy fails, you spin and you, you come up with rationalizations and excuses. Some of your followers may say, Hey, you know what? Uh, you're a failed prophet. Goodbye. But a lot of the people will feel emotionally and uh, psychologically and maybe even materially invested in the group, and they'll accept the leader's spin and say, yeah, that, that's a good explanation, and I'm going to stay in the group and continue to support you. And what, what Donald Trump did, and, and he's not a cult leader, but he, he is certainly a spinmeister, uh, he, he spun and he said, look, uh, this was rigged. Uh, the election is not legitimate, and uh, all of you should 
accept that. And the overwhelming majority of people that followed him did accept that. But does that make him a cult leader? No, without the kind of absolute authority that a David Koresh had or a Jim Jones of the People's Temple uh, or a Reverend Moon uh, who led the Unification Church. Uh, nobody elected these leaders. They weren't subject to uh, a vote. They had no accountability. And, and they, they didn't really tolerate anyone else uh, having a, uh, a, another doctrine coalescing with them. They were exclusive. They were uh, intolerant of any other group that had any other truth. And it, it's really very different than what we see with Donald Trump and uh, the coalition that that's a great him. answer what it, do you make of the um oh sorry go ahead <laughs> no i was just all i was just saying that, that, uh, yeah we're all super excited about this and i was actually telling seth because he hasn't got to speak yet <laughs> that he should be able to speak but something you just said though i just want to before we move on to anything else um that's a very good answer um as far as donald trump not being a cult leader but we're talking about like there still seems to be a cult mentality around him so is there able to be cults without any true leader and is, how scary would it be if somebody ends up like stepping into that role then it seems like there's uh, there's this whole idea out there and then they're just waiting for a leader then if donald trump's not it well you know you know, it's kind of like QAnon, Omar, is another example of all of this. I mean, you've got this group of people that, in my opinion, QAnon would be much closer uh, to a destructive cult, but we haven't been able to identify the leader. Recent research uh, in, in Switzerland and, and in Europe seems to indicate that there may be multiple leaders of QAnon. Nobody knows who Q is. There's the myth that Q is some kind of high-ranking intelligence officer in the U.S., uh, but I, I don't think that's really true. And uh, But we do have a group of people who follow Q online with absolute dedication, and whatever Q says is accepted. And now they're in an interesting situation because Donald Trump not being reelected directly contradicts uh, the predictions of QAnon. So it'll be interesting to see how that's spun and how people deal with that. But in my experience over the decades, when cult leaders fail in their predictions, they just spin around it. Uh, occasionally, there is a cult leader like uh, Luke Jurey of the Solar Temple or Marshall Applewhite of Heaven's Gate who, who set a hard date and then fulfilled their own prophecy. Uh, David Koresh made many predictions about the end of the world. And finally, he made it happen for his followers. Uh, there was another leader in Africa that's not often talked about, Joseph Kibwetere of the Movement for the Restoration of the Ten Commandments. And when his doomsday prediction failed in 2000, he implemented mass murder and suicide and more than 700 people. Is that the Jamestown cult you that you're talking about there? No, no, no. It's a Africa in Uganda. This community was led by a guy by the name of Joseph Kibwetere. Uh, Jonestown had almost a thousand deaths, and that was based on the on, on the leadership of Jim Jones, who was an absolute leader of that group. And after he killed Congressman Leo J. Ryan, he decided, okay, they're going to come and arrest me. We're all going to die. And he had rehearsed his people that they would very likely commit mass suicide in a ca 
catastrophic situation and they just either complied or they were killed. And that, of course, is where we get the uh, the saying, drink the Kool-Aid. Uh, yeah, because yeah. because Jim Jones had uh, a flavor-aid drink. Kool-Aid company doesn't want you to say it's Kool-Aid. <laughs> of course. Uh, it was a fla- flavor-aid punch, and there was cyanide uh, mm. mixed in it. And people either drank it voluntarily or they were forced to drink it. Over 200 children were murdered Jesus. by Jim Jones. Yeah, and you know, I do want to get into you. You mentioned Marshall Applewhite. I do want to get into Heaven's Gate uh, and Nexium here in just a little bit, but maybe you know, just a, a couple more minutes on on this idea of uh, of Trumpers. What do you make of all the pastors who are preaching a stolen election from the pulpit? There seems to be a whole lot of them, uh, Christian pastors that are doing this. Um, what do you think about that? Well, I you know, I I just think that Donald Trump uh, and his attorneys and and multiple attorney generals and we could go on and on more than 60 legal cases. And you know, I testify as a, a an expert in court cases. And that's where the rubber meets the road. When you go to court, you have to prove what you claim. So you can you can spin whatever you want to spin, but when you come to court, the court says, what is your evidence? And Rudy Giuliani and other attorneys that have helped Donald Trump have not been able to produce evidence that any court has regarded as meaningful. And so even Republican uh, uh, judges appointed by Donald Trump have rejected his legal claims. So I think these pastors who are preaching, they should know better. I mean, they understand the judicial system, which again is a check and balance against Donald Trump, unlike an absolute authoritarian cult leader. He has to, be, he has to deal with the realities of the legal system, uh, even though he may resent it. So I, I, I really think these pastors should calm down and it's a disservice to their flock to mislead them. And, and they should reflect on the court cases and, and of course, Donald Trump and his attorneys had every uh, available option to them to present compelling evidence in court, but they just simply failed and were unable to present anything meaningful. I really appreciate your answer on that. I think that's, you know, very common sense, very um, not one-sided. It's a, hey, he had his opportunity to present it and they didn't have enough evidence. So, you know, move on. Uh, Seth, do you have anything do you want to say? Because I got a quote from Jordan, one of our uh, uh, Patreon members. So I'd like to share with Rick. It's a question. Go, go. With so, it. so Jordan asked a great question, and I think it kind of you know ties in with the Donald Trump uh, possibility or whatever. Um, and he says, "Do you think that the reality of cults like Nixium and the whole slave aspect of said cult, uh, do you think that that facilitates conspiracy theorists that believe that these things are happening in elite circles with Hollywood and politics?" Uh, no, I you know I I just think that's a preposterous theory that there's this uh, unilateral uh, group that uh, is acting out of Hollywood that they're this is according to the QAnon conspiracy theory that there, there's a ring of, of, of pedophiles who are Democrats, who are plotting in Hollywood, and George Soros is involved, and on and on we go. A lot of it is kind of these old anti-Semitic tropes that really evokes the uh, an old book uh, that was debunked called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. 
So it's it's just a kind of global conspiracy theory that it just doesn't hold water. And I think Keith Raniere, who was a classic cult leader, had no accountability, was an object of worship, was an absolute authoritarian figure, and his power just kept escalating. Uh, the, that is the amount of, of power that he had over his individual followers. And of course, it culminated with sex slaves uh, and, and torture and mutilation when he branded women with, had them branded with a cauterizing iron with his initials. So this is nothing uh, like Donald Trump. This is something entirely different. And it, it, it shows us how extreme cults can become. They're not all as extreme as each other. They vary by degree from group to group. And certainly Keith Raniere and Nexium is an example of, of a group that became very, very extreme. Yeah, I, I watched, like I said, I watched The Vow over uh, Christmas break. I haven't watched, uh, what, what did you call the other one, The Seduction? Uh, it's called Seduced. Seduced. And, it's, and it features India Oxenberg. And The Vow, uh, in large part, uh, shows her mother, Catherine Oxenberg, get, trying to get her out of Nexium. And I, I worked with Catherine extensively. And later I met India Oxenberg when I did the documentary Seduced. Gotcha. So I haven't seen Seduced yet where, where the vow left off. And I guess there's going to be another season. I didn't realize that. Um, but where I left off, India hadn't even gotten out of the cult yet. So, so no spoilers, hopefully. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, I, it, I was fascinated. I was fascinated with the whole story. Um, you know, some of the, the main players in that cult, of course, uh, famous actress, Alison Mack, um, a, a filmmaker, Mark Vicente, you know, they're all part of this cult. Mark Vicente doesn't even know, uh, or at least it seems like he doesn't even know that some of the, the crazy stuff that's happening, such as the branding and the slaves, uh, doesn't even know that that's going on. Uh, but yet he's still like, a um, you know, one of the higher ups there. It seems like that cult in particular, uh, really was only to the benefit of Keith Raniere. Um, can you talk to us a little bit more about Nexium and, and maybe try to explain how um, one gets involved in something like that? Well, I think what uh, the vow uh, really shows you is the, you know, the, the slow process of being pulled into a destructive cult and how it happens in small increments over a period of time and, and how intense the indoctrination process is. Uh, Mark Vicente actually did a documentary about another group called a cult, the Ramtha School of Enlightenment, led by Jay-Z Knight, who claims to channel a 35,000-year-old dead spirit by the name of Ramtha, who was a general in the lost continent of Atlantis. Man, that has layers. So anyway, he, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he did, he did a documentary featuring Jay-Z Knight called what the bleep <laughs> that was, that was pretty, pretty popular and uh, very, very much a part of the new age movement. And one of the things that Mark and I talked about when he left Nexium, and I've talked with Mark a lot, met with him over a period of time is he said to me, you know, I don't ever want to get in another cult. I, I left one group that people called a cult, and then I ended up in another group. Uh, how do I stop? I don't want to be a cult hopper going from one cult to another for the rest of my life. And so what we were able to do is talk about 
the process of indoctrination, what to watch out for, and the telltale warning signs of, of a destructive cult. And I think Mark, uh, who's read my book, Cults Inside Out, and kind of internalized it, uh, he, I don't think he'll, he will be likely to be recruited again. But looking at Nexium, uh, my first experience with Keith Raniere and Nexium began in 2001, 2002, when I was hired by a family to do interventions to get their loved ones out of Nexium. And I was successful in getting three people out, but one person I failed with who continued with the group. Uh, In the process, uh, I had some uh, doctors a forensic psychiatrist and a clinical psychologist uh, analyzed Nexium's training based on uh, manual notes that were given to me, and then uh, write papers, uh, you know, looking at Nexium and how it manipulates people. When Keith Ranieri saw those uh, papers published online, he went ballistic and he sued me. And that lawsuit went on for 14 years. Good grief. Uh, yeah, yeah. Nex- Nexium spent an estimated $5 million suing me over that period. And Keith Ranieri Keith had two women that were heiresses to the Seagram's liquor fortune, Claire and Sarah Bronfman, that fed him probably over $100 million wow. uh, to sue people to finance Nexium over a period of years. Claire Bronfman, by the way, is now in prison. She was sentenced to almost seven years in prison for her role in bankrolling Keith Ranieri. And in the process of the litigation, I also went through court-ordered mediation in which I physically met with Keith Ranieri and spent hours uh, talking with him and also hours watching his deposition uh, in person. So I, I got a good uh, understanding of Keith Ranieri through that. And, uh, and certainly over the years of the litigation, I was a primary target of Nexium. And many of the people as they left would call me and meet with me and talk with me about their experiences in that group. And, and what I think Keith Ranieri is an example of is someone who was a bad cult leader, but who got worse. So over a period of time, let's say he just kept escalating the amount of damage he did to people and the amount of loyalty he demanded and the control that that he wanted. Uh, No matter how much money he got, no matter how much power he got, no matter how much sex he got, he always wanted more. Hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. All of this is truly fascinating. And it, it, it seems like a lot of these cults are able to use the legal system to, you know, to protect themselves, whether or not they're act- acting as a church with a 501c3 or I'm a little bit behind personally in my documentaries. Um, I'm not as caught up as Chris is, um, but I have watched, you know, Leah Remini's Scientology, Scientology stuff on Netflix. And uh, one of the things that I was like just kind of floored by is how much money they're willing to spend and how much time and resources on just like going after people they think are dissenters or people that are, you know, like, um, how have you been able to 
stay afloat and all that. I mean, you're not, yeah, you're just one person. I mean, you you have the Colt Institute, obviously, and you have a book, but I mean, just the legal fees alone and having to deal with like these cults that have millions, a million, hundreds of millions of dollars that they can just throw at you to like basically disappear you. How, how are you still here? <laughs> Pro bono lawyers, praise God. Uh, lawyers and organizations that are willing to uh, to work for free to help people like me on the basis of First Amendment, freedom of speech, uh, freedom of expression. So, in for example, in the 14-year lawsuit uh, with Nexium, it would have cost me over two million dollars to defend myself. There's no way. Instead, yeah. uh, a con- a, a group of attorneys uh, that I am very grateful to uh, from, uh, for example, Lowenstein and Sandler, uh, a big law firm in New Jersey, uh, Douglas Brooks, uh, a, a lawyer who knew Keith Ranieri, who is in the Boston area, uh, the Berkman Institute from Harvard University, Public Citizen in Washington, D.C., which was uh, uh, founded by Ralph Nader. All of those resources came together and helped me to fight Keith Ranieri for 14 years. And we prevailed just before he was arrested, his lawsuit was dismissed. And in fact, I've been sued five times by different cults. At one point I can remember being sued by three different groups called cults simultaneously. Wow! And all, all the time I was defended by lawyers who work pro bono, charged me nothing and just wanted to defend uh, my freedom to criticize these groups or publish information online about them. And so that's a lot of times that in the last several years, the last uh, since 1996, when I launched the Cult Education Institute database, I've been sued five times for information on that uh, database, none of which has been taken down ever, and uh, which has all been defended successfully. But if it wasn't for the pro bono legal help, I would be sunk totally. And Keith Ranieri, Keith Ranieri bankrupted right. many people uh, through, lit- through litigation. And I'm wondering too, like, I mean, getting that close to Scientology, have you ever, you know, walked anybody through um, you know, leaving Scientology, and if you have, um, or been that close, I mean, have you ever had anybody like feel like following you or found anybody in your trash or anything like that? Like, because there's the legal side of it, but then there's also just you know being scared of like you know they like to try to find you know expose like dirty secrets and all that different stuff. Yeah, all the different tactics that um, Scientology use. It was like shocking. So I'm like, so I thought about you when I was watching that show, you know, having this relationship. I'm like, man, like Rick, like uh, has, have you experienced any of that yourself? Did they find any collateral on you? (laughs) Uh, Well, I can tell you that Keith Ranieri spent hundreds of thousands of dollars with a private investigation firm called Interfor in New York with offices in Manhattan. And they literally bought my garbage. As well. This came out in federal court. Yeah, yeah. They 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 arranged for somebody to get my garbage and they bought it for I don't know how long and they went through it. And uh, I ended up suing Interfor for uh, in, in violating my privacy. They also illegally went into my bank records and my phone really? records, which, which, which also came out in federal court. And... Uh, Ultimately, I settled with them 
they, they offered a settlement and we did not go to court. But uh, Scientology also hired a private investigator to stalk me. And uh, it was when I was deprogramming a Waco Davidian that I later found out that Scientology contacted David Koresh and told him, hey, this guy is deprogramming one of your followers in Los Angeles. You should be aware of that. And at that time, of course, the Waco Davidians were heavily armed. Uh, David Koresh would later kill people, uh, federal officers trying to serve a warrant on, on him in, at his compound. And Scientology knew all, all of this. They knew that he was uh, you know, pretty intense cult leader with uh, quite a weapon stockpile. And they told him, hey, this guy is uh, going after one of your loyal followers while he's visiting his family in California. Just wanted you to know. And I realized after that that I was being followed uh, by this private investigator. So Scientology has harassed me over the years as well. And I can empathize with Leah Remini and her uh, show Scientology in the Aftermath. And ironically, uh, Mike Rinder, yeah. who's on that show, uh, he was once, uh, you know, const he was one of the people that Scientology like had an enforcer. as yeah. a, he was like an enforcer. He was their public relations guy. And I'm sure on at least one occasion, he probably denounced me personally as he did, as he did many critics of Scientology. And I greatly admire Mike Rinder for taking Scientology on and the way that he's, he's helped so many people by doing that, and Leah Remini as well. Uh, Scientology, if you go quietly, they might leave you alone. They will probably cut you off from your old friends or family that stay in Scientology through what they call their disconnection policy. Uh, but they might not harass you personally if you just go quietly and say nothing. Yeah. Have you ever uh, talked to Karen Presley? Uh, who was an ex-Scientologist uh, who kind of came out and started a, a ministry of trying to get people out? Uh, no, I haven't talked to her. But um, just on that note of getting people out, in my book, I have two chapters about Scientology. One is about an intervention with a man who was in Scientology 27 years. And finally, his family thought it was getting out of hand. I, I don't know why, you know, they waited 27 years, but at any rate, I think it was because he was going to go into what's called Sea Org, which is full time. And you live in a Scientology housing uh, setup and your entire life is Scientology. Billion years, you right? Go, uh, yeah, you sign the billion year contract and you go in and basically you kind of disappear. Uh, your family may not be able to have contact yeah, like age with eight too is ridiculous it's crazy yeah yeah when 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 the family was confronted with that possibility uh they brought me in i did an intervention and on his 50th birthday it was the first time that he had been free of scientology in 27 years he joined he joined when he was 22 he left when he was 49 and uh, I talk about that intervention in my book. It was uh, one of the most interesting interventions I've ever done. That's incredible. That's absolutely crazy. And, and the fact that you've done so much uh, with with certain members, like I, I'm fascinated the fact that you got to sit down with Keith Ranieri. Like, can you just tell me, is he 
someone who you can, after talking with him, you can kind of see why people followed him or was your interaction with him like, you know, yeah, yeah. What was he like? Uh, he, totally not charismatic. He's a little guy, looks like a gardener, <laughs> and smell and, and smells like one too. By the way, <laughs> this guy is not into showers or cleanliness, so he was totally not charismatic, but very devious and manipulative. And his his mo his. Uh, uh, style of manipulating people was to be very calm, low key, and act like he was this great philosopher, this great intellect, who who was humble. Uh, and and then the people would say, "Oh wow, you know, uh, he's got a 200 plus IQ. He's he's got this incredible bio as a genius, uh, which all was as just bio, lies. not bio. It was just made up." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. He, he he had he had bo and he had a fake bio. Wow! And uh, and and when I met when I met with him, my impression of him was, and I've met a number of cult leaders over the years, that he was just one more, and I would categorize him as most probably a psychopath. Yeah, and and just devoid of empathy, uh, limited sympathy. The guy is totally self obsessed deeply narcissistic. I mean, in, in his mind, the world revolves around him. And there would be points in the uh, mediation when I would just say, no, I'm not interested in your philosophy, because he was trying, he was trying to explain it to me, his philosophy that he called rational inquiry. Yeah. And, and I said, look, I, I don't care what you believe. I'm here because you're suing me. And all the lawyers in the room, and there must have been like, seven or eight of them are all nodding their heads. Yeah, that's why we're here. You know, and, uh, to shut up. And, yeah, and Ranieri would just keep going on. And finally, I looked at him and I said, you know what, Keith, uh, I just think you're a destructive cult leader and a con man. And I don't care about your philosophy. It means nothing to me. And he got very red faced. And you could tell that this was not something that he was used to dealing right. with. Which wow. is uh, having somebody refuse him or say no to him or reject him. And uh, a lot of times when cults go to court, it's it's a kind of a reckoning because, again, they have to deal with facts. And if they don't have facts to support their claims, which they most often do not, uh, they fail. And uh, how many of these cults succeed in court is they just overwhelm you. Uh, with legal fees. And unfortunately, the way our judicial system is set up, you can you can sue somebody for nothing, spend a ton of money, and basically calculate, hey, my opponent doesn't have that much money. And so I'm just going to bankrupt them through legal expenses, which is what Ranieri did and what Scientology has done many times. Yeah. I, I'm I've got a couple more questions about Nexium, and I, I kind of want to see if I can get a good segue into uh, Heaven's Gate, if uh, if that's cool. So with Keith Raniere, he off he obviously had kind of like a number two, uh, you know, a, a person that um, worked alongside him and helped him, you know, grow Nexium or whatnot. He also had people like Allison Mack, and I'm curious, do you think Allison Mack's or excuse me, Allison Mack? Um, is a psychopath as well, or is she someone who is just, ha, has just been manipulated by Keith Raniere? 
Uh, she has been manipulated to the point of becoming almost robotic in her obedience and subservience to Ranieri. I mean, she was uh, guilty of horrible, horrible uh, crimes right. in, in, in that she was involved in the torturing and mutilation of, of many women. And uh, she's probably going to go to prison for a, for a decent amount of time. I would say seven to 10 years perhaps more for her role in, in what happened. Uh, certainly she can claim, you know, I was under undue influence. I was manipulated, but I think because of the, the heinous uh, nature of her crimes and how hurtful they were and destructive, she's going to have to go to prison. Uh, Ranieri second in command actually ironically will probably do better than Allison Mack and I see her as a more guilty person but she was the first to plead out uh, and basically in my opinion she threw her own daughter under the bus Lauren Salzman and I'm talking about Nancy Salzman the no number two in Nexium. <clears throat> she was called prefect Ranieri was called vanguard I don't know what he was the vanguard of <laughs> other than he needed a soap called Vanguard or something. <laughs> like that. But at, at, at any way, at any rate, Nancy Salzman prefect, she probably will get off with maybe half the time that uh, Allison Mack will get. And then there's also a bookkeeper that is waiting for sentencing. But uh, based on the 120 year sentence Ranieri received, and the seven-year sentence that Claire Bronfman received, which was exceeding uh, the recommendation of the prosecutors, uh, I expect the judge to deal harshly with, Na with Nancy Salzman, probably giving her more time than she thought she'd get. Uh, I think she's hoping for three years. But, uh, you know, look, going back to Charles Manson, uh, he manipulated his women, he weaponized his women, and they murdered people. Right now, those women, in my opinion, were brainwashed, uh, and they were not really operating independently, and they were simply puppets uh, being played by Charlie Manson. But they had to go to prison, and I would say that I'm opposed to their parole. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. In fact, I was once contacted by someone who wanted me to participate in petitioning for the release of one of those women, and I refused. Good for you. So, yeah. so, so, you know, my feeling is, yes, that you can be under undue influence and manipulated, but if you cross the line and you hurt people 
and you kill people, you're going to suffer for that. Yeah. And you're going to be incarcerated. Yeah. Well, the the transition I'm talking about, of course, is the fact that Nexium had uh, a man and a woman, you know, duo leadership there. And uh, of course, so did Heaven's Gate, uh, Marshall Applewhite uh, and Bonnie Nettles. And so um, what, what a beautiful romance that was. <laughs> well, Applewhite was gay, if I'm not uh, mistaken, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, but he still called Nettles his soulmate. So can you tell us a little bit more about Heaven's Gate? Well, Marshall Applewhite had a PhD. He was a professor at a university. He taught music. He struggled with his sexuality. Uh, he It appears that he left his job under a cloud of sexual misconduct. And then he periodically would sign himself into mental institutions because he, he wasn't very mentally stable and subject to, you know, you know uh, moods, altering and depression and mania and whatever. And that's when he met uh, Bonnie Nettles. She was a psychiatric nurse and they became a, a duo. They called themselves T and Doe. And, uh, and Applewhite was Doe. In fact, in the group, uh, there was a Nike um, slogan, just do it with Nike. And uh, Applewhite was fascinated with Nike shoes. And he took that slogan and changed it to just do it. <laughs> and, uh, and his followers would, would, they were an example of one of the most extremely controlled groups that I've ever dealt with. Uh, and no, I didn't deal with them when they, before the, the mass suicide, because they were flying under almost everyone's radar. Uh, friends of mine, Flo Conway and Jim Siegelman, actually knew about them. They, they had another name. It was called the Total Overcomers. And the, the theory that Applewhite uh, laid out was that you could become a student of his, uh, and he would call his followers his class, his students, and he would teach you how to overcome uh, your humanity. And this is almost chilling because basically he regarded the, the human beings as nothing more than containers and that ultimately you would shed your humanity, you would die, and you would rise to what he called the level above human. And Applewhite had himself castrated, uh, I think because he couldn't deal with his sexuality. And then he encouraged other men in the group to also be castrated, which they did. Wow. And then, and then they, they progressively became clones of Applewhite. They all had the same haircut. They wore the same clothes. They all wore Nikes. They all died the same way. And he ordered their last supper as well. They lived together in a, a kind of McMansion uh, near San Diego. They were website designers. They would do web work, which at the time in the 90s was very well paid for. And so they, they were all online. They were working in seclusion. They never left the house without being escorted by another member of the group. And they were totally cut off from their families, from their from their old friends, with the exception of one student who was uh, who was the brother of the woman who played Uhura in Star Trek. Wow. Uh, she she uh, was uh, accepted by Applewhite. She was never critical of the group. I guess he 
he fancied her because of her celebrity and her role in Star Trek. And Applewhite would often use uh, imagery from, from Star Trek in his teachings. Uh, and so other than, than that one woman, that one television actress, uh, no one had contact with their loved ones in the group. And families uh, that contacted me would say, I haven't seen my father or seen my brother for 10, 20 years. So it was a very strange group. And then ultimately, when Applewhite decided he wanted to die, he saw no reason for his students to continue to live. Uh, they were nothing more than uh, a, a, his a, attached to him. And he was, if you will, the brain, the head of this body, the group. And so when he decided that he wanted to end his life, he came up with a rationalization uh, for all of the members of the group to die. And they committed mass suicide uh, based on his speculation that they would then rise to the level above human and be uh, transported uh, to a spaceship that was behind the Hale-Bopp comet as it came through our solar system. It was a very sad and tragic end. And uh, it was very sad to see all these families who were devastated by the loss of their loved ones. And there's still people from that cult who, who still say, man, I wish I could have gone with them. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, initially when I was contacted about the, the deaths of the 39 people in, in Rancho Santa Fe and Heaven's Gate, they thought that it was more people committing suicide connected to another group called the Solar Temple in Switzerland. And these were the followers of Luc Jure, who within a year before had all died, uh, about 80 of them in a terrible fire. And then there were many members that were not there at the time and they would commit suicide subsequent to the main group dying. And, and so many people thought, well, is this a pocket of Solar Temple followers that are following Luke Jure's instructions to die? And then later we found out, no, this is a completely separate group uh, that also has committed suicide. Wow. Elizabeth and Seth, do you have any questions? Because if not, I got a ton. No, you have to <laughs> shut up, Chris. Me and you have to shut up. <laughs> Babe, ask something. I, <laughs> well, uh, you guys are the ones that have been watching all the documentaries. I just, I, I... We had a listener or uh, asked a question prior about um, why about personalities of people who get sucked into cults, and uh, they were a they were asking why is it that there's a how did how was it worded? Now I'm going to ask Chris to talk again. But here it is: Why <laughs> is it that people who have never been in a cult seem to believe that it could never happen to them? That Why is, don't they realize how susceptible we all are? There, that. And that was asked by Michael on our on our Facebook feed, and um, I think it's a really good question as well. Specifically, since you know a lot of the examples we talk about are small community, like it's a small group, right? Well, the nation. <laughs> Donald Trump may not be a cult leader, but we're seeing cult-like behavior. You know, so so why don't? we realize how susceptible we are. 
I don't I don't know. I think people should recognize that we're all susceptible. The one the one constant thread that I see in the narrative of people that have been involved in destructive cults is that maybe at the time they were approached, they were unhappy. Uh, they were not happy campers. They were going through some kind of distress. Uh, maybe they lost their job. Uh, they had a recent divorce, a breakup, a death in the family. They were depressed and then they were approached and they had the bad luck to be approached by a destructive cult. And the cult said, hey, we have the answers. We can help you. Uh, I would say that if you're happy and content with your life and you're, you're, you're not depressed, you're not going through a bad patch, you're, you're somewhat less likely, certainly, to be, uh, to be responsive to a destructive cult trying to recruit you. And so I, I think that might be a constant, uh, though I would tell people that are, that, that are speculating that only crazy people or weird people get involved in cults, that that's not true that I've done over 500 interventions for families over the years. And I've seen people from every walk of life, uh, rich, poor, educated, not educated. Uh, in fact, five medical doctors were amongst the people that I worked with. One was an orthopedic surgeon, another was an anesthesiologist. So it can happen to anyone. And the way we protect ourselves is we become aware of the warning signs. We become aware of what constitutes a destructive cult and some of the tricks they use to entrap people. And that really kind of insulates us or can protect us from, from falling prey to them. Do you think the desire for community at all is, is something that sucks people in too? Even though, I mean, ultimately destructive cults aren't a great community to be part of, but... Is that part of that as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, when people are feeling lonely and depressed and they feel isolated, for example, uh, many times it's a freshman in college who's living away from home, doesn't know anybody and where he's at or she's at. And along comes this group who says, hey, we're having a volleyball game. We're having a, a social gathering. Would you like to come? And maybe the person who's talking to them is appealing. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe they're thinking this, this would be good. I am lonely. I would like to be involved with people and meet new people. And so they become susceptible. They're vulnerable at that particular point. And all of us want to be in relationships with people that make us feel joy and who seem to uh, have our values. And a lot of times when uh, cult recruiters approach people, they do so in a way that is specific, uh, specifically uh, designed to appeal to the potential recruit. Uh, it's been called love bombing. They're, they're seemingly unconditional acceptance and love. But when they get, when that person actually gets involved in the group, it's not unconditional love. It's totally predicated on whether or not you accept everything they want you to accept and follow all of their rules and are subservient to their leadership. Uh, but they don't tell you that in the beginning. So in a way, it's kind of a bait and switch con. You think you're getting all this love and attention and this community of, of really great people, but behind the door, it's something entirely different. And so you're deceptively recruited in and then you find yourself in something that 
you really didn't plan to join at all. I want to also ask another question here from uh, listeners who've been listening in. Jordan, after kind of hearing some of the stories you shared um, and the people that you've worked with, um, asked that, do you find that most cult leaders, charismatic or not, don't really buy into their own hype? I'd, I'd say most of them don't buy into their own hype and are knowingly lying a lot of the time. It gets scary when they believe their own hype. Because then you end up with Marshall Applewhite, David Koresh, Jim Jones. Uh, these are not uh, poster people for mental health. So we're talking about people who are probably, at, at bare minimum, sociopathic, uh, deeply narcissistic uh, individuals. Uh, and also, they may, they may in fact be psychopaths. Many of them are psychopaths. So they are, they may get to a point where they believe their own hype. And I, I think that's what happened to David Koresh. That's what happened to Marshall Applewhite. And when they believe their own hype, they are much more likely to hurt people, to be dangerous. Because when they're, when they're thinking, hey, I'm just in a con game for money, for sexual favors, for free labor, they, they can, you know, kind of pull back when they see their con jeopardized, when they see their business model uh, it being threatened. So a lot of the, the cult leaders- Opposed do, to a true believer. Yeah, I mean, if you become a true believer, and at one point, I think David Koresh was a con man, but I think progressively, and I dealt with him uh, for five years before the Waco Davidian standoff. And there were times that he would just pull back. There were times that he would- uh, let people out because it was pragmatic, because it was a problem. He seemed to manage his cult compound like a business. But then towards the end, he became completely caught up in his own mythology. And I think that he, he really did believe him in, in, in himself as a kind of messianic figure. And, and that's when he became very dangerous. That, that was a question I had about... Um what you're talking about before about people who don't necessarily just join destructive cults um, by choice. And I'm wondering if something like even the branch Davidians, it didn't even start out. It may have started out as a cult, but it was more benign or it was not destructive at, at that point. So there's a possibility somebody could also just get involved in something when it is innocent and, and like the leader gets sucked and they just get sucked into weirder and weirder stuff. And all of a sudden you don't realize how deep you're in too. Like, is there, is that branch Davidians a good example of that? And can you think of other, oh, other examples you know, of, of cults that started that way too, or not? Branch Davidians are a perfect example of that. And keep in mind that children are born into these groups, whether it's Scientology, the branch Davidians, uh, polygamous sex, these children white have no choice. They're white, white nationalists. They're born into this kind of environment, this kind of group. They're raised on it. What we see as crazy, they see as normal. Now, the Waco Davidians was a group that had been around Waco for a long time. It was actually started by a guy by the name of Victor Howdeff. Uh, He died. His wife then took over. Uh, she left. Uh, and, and I guess retired in California after she cashed out on some of the real estate they had. And then the group was taken over by a guy by the name of George Roden. 
And then he died and his wife, Lois Roden, took over. And then in comes David Koresh in the 80s. And he becomes uh, Lois Roden's pet or uh, her, her number one admirer. And they have what could have been a romantic relationship, but it was a very close relationship. And then she died and he took over. And that's when things really went bad. I mean, the group was peaceful, nonviolent, up until David Koresh took over. A lot of and, people left at that point too, right? Uh, the, yeah, there were people that left because uh, George Roden Jr., who hoped to take over the group after his mother died, ended up getting uh, shot at by David Koresh and his followers. And uh, David Koresh, who, whose real name was Vernon Howell, actually was tried for attempted murder and he was let go when there was a hung jury. And the prosecutor said prophetically at that point, you know, I think we're going to hear from him again. He's a very uh, uh, dangerous guy. And uh, sure enough, he went back to the compound, started stockpiling weapons. Uh, uh, ultimately, he was a pedophile and he abused children. Yeah, that's the thing uh, I couldn't he, understand. And I think that's why it seemed like a lot of people left because he started saying how he's going to he can sleep with whoever he wants in the compound. Like, like well, I don't know what God you're listening to. That's crazy. But no, yeah. it, it kept getting crazier and crazier. And it was kind of, it, it was in increments. So for a while, it wasn't so bad. Then he said to all the couples that were married, you can't have sex with your spouse. Uh, the only people that can have sex in our compound would be me and whoever I choose to have sex with which at first were the adult women and later uh, children. Uh, he raped Carrie Jewell, uh, who testified before Congress about her experience when she was 10. And her mother was so brainwashed that she actually gave her daughter to David Koresh, be, uh, believing that him sharing his seed with her was some kind of biblical mandate. Uh, and that this was the seed of David and that he was creating a succession uh, that was divinely appointed. I mean, the group got crazier and crazier and more and more isolated from the outside world as Koresh, uh, you know, just descended really into madness. So I know that the Branch Davidians, of course, that whole thing ended in fire. Those people, of course, um, probably not very happy with themselves. I just find it interesting that you hear about people like, for example, from Nexium, there's this guy that had Tourette's, Mark Elliott, who, you know, still swears by Keith Rainier's ability to cure him of that. Uh, and you also have people from Heaven's Gate, um, family members of people that were in the cult say, hey, they were actually genu genu genuinely happy while they were in that cult. You know, they were they were very content. Um, you know, at what point does a cult become destructive? Uh, because these people are happy at some point, but then at the end of the day, 39 people, the biggest mass suicide on U.S. soil, uh, you know, Heaven's Gate, these people ended up killing themselves because Marshall Applewhite told them to do it, you know. So at what point do cults become destructive? Well, at the point in which they exploit people and do damage to people. So, for example, the families of these members of Heaven's Gate uh, were estranged from them. And, and these people were isolated and those families suffered greatly uh, and they were harmed. Uh, 
uh, the people that were in heaven's gate. They, they didn't receive any uh, compensation. They worked basically for room and board. And Marshall Applewhite was in charge of all the money and how the group was run. Uh, so over a period of time, and, and there were men that were castrated that would never be able to uh, change that situation for the rest of their lives. They were damaged. Uh, but it's, it's fair to say that many of them did not see this. Uh, they did not feel that they were being exploited. Uh, but then ultimately when they all died, I think that was the final testimony of how total the destruction of Marshall Applewhite was and, and, and how it culminated in such a tragedy. Uh, many of these groups, uh, you know, look, if, if a cult leader is worshiped and the leader has weird beliefs and the leader does not harm his or her members and does not commit crimes, uh, we might regard that group as a benign cult. A destructive cult would be when people are getting hurt. And that varies by degree from group to group. Some groups are much worse than others. Let me be clear, not every group is going to uh, mix uh, the poisonous Kool-Aid or stockpile weapons. In fact, that's a very small minority of destructive cults. Most of the time, it's about the leader getting rich. It's about the leader uh, feeding his or her ego. It's about money. It's about power. It's about sex but it may not uh, include anything criminal. And when these groups eventually collide with reality and, and they, they get on the news, it's either a tragedy uh, like Heaven's Gate or they have committed crimes like Keith Ranieri, who was convicted of multiple felonies, including sex trafficking, tax fraud, racketeering. So if you're a cult leader and you, you stay within the boundaries of the law, you, you may exploit your followers and get away with it for a long time. But if you cross the line into criminality, then uh, law enforcement becomes involved and you have to, uh, you know, you have to pay the piper. And uh, it's, as I've often said, you can believe whatever you want, but you may not do whatever you wish in the name of those beliefs. So when you commit crimes, Expect maybe the police are going to come knocking uh, on your door, uh, whether you say you're the Messiah, God, or whatever, uh, you can be held accountable. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, you know, we we have people who have been involved in cults currently watching along with us who are kind of echoing what you're saying uh, and even expounding upon it. So, um, you know, those of you who are listening uh, after the fact, not on Facebook live, you know, make sure to go on Facebook and check out a lot of these comments. They're really, really good. Um, man, Rick, like watching those documentaries, like I watched the vow, uh, which is on HBO max. And I also watched heaven's gate cult of cults on HBO max. I don't know if you've seen that one, but, uh, man, I was blown away by both of them. Uh, just how well done they were, you know, the, the heaven's gate when they took all this footage, um, that, that the heaven's gate cult recorded themselves over a period of you know 30 years and they compiled it in a, you know, a really great way where they told the story. And at the very end of the heaven's gate one, you know, they play this song. Uh, I can't remember who the name of the singer is, but it's uh, she keeps singing this refrain over and over again, save me. And uh, it, w when that started playing after watching that, it's a very short documentary, three hours um, after watching that, man, I got really emotional because 
I can relate to that. You know, whenever I was involved in Christianity, um, as part of fundamentalist Christianity, I, I had a similar experience where I just felt like I needed someone to save me. And so I thought, man, all this time I'm thinking I'm above these people. I could never be, you know, pulled into something like that. Um, but at the end of the day, I think at some point in your life, you feel like you need someone to save you. And these people are getting involved in these cults. Uh, I mean, for example, Mark Vicente in the Nexium one, the vow, he says, who joins a cult? <laughs> you know, nobody does. Nobody joins a cult. Um, but at some point he was involved in two, you know, and it, it's just, it's mind numbing how that could be us. That could be anyone, you know? And, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm fascinated by these cults. I'm fascinated at the links that people would go to, uh, you know, killing themselves, killing other people, whatever it is that the leader asked them to do, um, you know, and for what purpose so that they feel like they belong to something or they feel like they're being saved by something. And, and it's all just extremely fascinating. So anyway, I, I, I don't know if anybody else has any questions or not. I know I, I have uh, a statement. We, I'm cutting you off, Chris, because yeah, I have a, I have a state, I have a statement more than anything <laughs> and just that. I, I do think it really is important, like what Chris said, to realize that we're all susceptible. And Rick Allen Ross said you had said it earlier as well, but we really are all susceptible. I think Omar and I have similar stories to being involved in what we would classify as a non-destructive cult. I would think, Omar, I don't know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, it's you don't join the cult and we are all susceptible to it. So I would ask the world, I guess, show grace towards one another, show grace towards people, especially who are coming out of those cult situations, because you don't know if you've not been through that, you don't know what it's like. You don't know um, how easy it is just to get involved thinking that you're being part of a community and doing doing good things. Um, and I, I think and there's some serious PTSD involved, too. There is some serious PTSDs to where like, I, I mean, <laughs> I have it from being involved in church ministry. Like, I, you, you got to be you, be gracious towards us as we kind of process this and work through it on our own. Well, let me just say this, uh, Elizabeth. Uh, there, there are many groups that are not religious, like uh, Keith Raniere. His group was not religious or, or spiritual at all. It was about seminar training. It was about self, so so-called self-improvement. So, but but if you belong to a church where you feel you can never be good enough, and you're constantly, you know, trying to prove you're good enough, you're good enough, you're good enough, uh, you ought to ask yourself what's going on in this church. I mean, because the basic Christian message, and I I deal with this a lot, where. A church may not be a cult, but it may be destructive. Mm -hmm. uh, people feel very abused. They have low self-esteem, and they think it's all their fault. But in fact, there's a dynamic in the church, uh, and, and typically these churches may be uh, standalone churches, independent churches, uh, with a very charismatic, uh, powerful leader who doesn't seem to really have a lot of accountability. And they feel like no matter what they do, no matter what they say, they can never be good enough, which is a contradiction over the basic message of evangelical churches, mm -hmm. which is you're saved, not by works, but by grace. And you, and, and yeah, and you are good enough. 
I mean, that's one of the, the most positive things about Christianity is the feeling that, you know, God loves me and I am good enough no matter what I did. If you're in a church and you feel that you aren't good enough, you have to ask yourself, what kind of a church is this? And what am I involved in here? When you see people uh, getting saved over and over again and coming up for altar calls, uh, you know, frequently, yeah. you have to ask yourself, why do they feel that they need to do that? Don't they have confidence in their salvation? And what is the dynamic in this church where I don't have confidence that I am saved and that I am good enough? So, I, I mean, that's what I encounter a lot when people call me and they say, I'm in this church and I feel bad and I should feel good and I don't understand what's going on here. And so if you take it apart, and I think people need to do that, and maybe take a break, uh, they can see what might be happening. Uh, it may not be a cult, but it could be a destructive organization. Yeah, that's a good point. Very well put. And I've been blown away by this conversation, Rick. You have floored me once again. The first conversation was great. This was, I just was sitting back and listening and watching. I learned a lot. I appreciate the hell out of you. Seth, do you have stuff for listeners before we go? <laughs> I mean, I've just been very quiet. I mean, I've struggled to get a word in edgewise, but I mean, honestly, that's fine. I'm uh, sorry, this conversation. <laughs> this conversation has been excellent. Um, there have been a lot of really good uh, questions that have been asked throughout the conversation. And to kind of wrap things up, um, I'm going to ask one more, um, also by Jordan. Um, he asked, how many cults with a decent amount of leverage would you say operate in America today? To kind of wrap things up here, you know, what 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 is the prevalency? What should we be looking out for in headlines? <laughs> more than ten, more than ten thousand yeah. wow. have been have been identified in North America on the basis of complaints received by an organization called the International Cultic Studies Association, which interestingly, back I think in the eighties, they had. At that point, they said 5,000. So it just keeps growing. And I don't think I go through a day or certainly not a week without learning about some group that would fit the profile of a destructive cult uh, that I've never heard of. And now these groups are proliferating online. They, they're, on, they're using social media platforms. And they're just much more prolific than they've ever been in, in my career going back to the 80s. Yeah. I had no idea that there were that many. Well, yeah, you know, if you, you know, we look at it strictly as a business proposition. I'm, I'm selling something that's intangible. Uh, it's not a real product. It makes you feel good. I claim that I'm selling salvation. I claim that I'm selling enlightenment. Uh, you give me your money. I make a lot of money. There's gold in them there cults. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I mean, when, when, when Reverend Moon died, he reportedly had $600 million. That's when, incredible. uh, L when L Ron Hubbard died in 86, he supposedly had about the same amount of money though. Now they estimate that Scientology is probably worth more than $3 billion. Wow. So it's real estate. It's, it's real estate, making money, living the leaders, live the good life the followers frequently do not rick thank you so much for being on the show um i think we're going to wrap it up now if, um 
if any of our listeners want to get a hold of you or find you, what can you give us your website information or are you on any social media platforms they could get a hold of you on? Yeah, they can follow me on Twitter, Rick Allen Ross. They can find the Cult Education Institute Facebook page, or they can go to culteducation.com, which is one of the largest databases about controversial groups and movements, many called cults, that they can access online. Uh, They can go there and for free go through the vast archives that have been under construction since 96, and they'll find a wealth of information there. And of course, they can email me, rickross at culteducation.com. That's great. Thank you. And where's the best place for us to find your book, Cults Inside Out? It is for sale on Amazon, and uh, you can download it through Kindle, or you can order it through Amazon. Uh, soon, there will be an audiobook that will be released of of cults inside out and you know this are is are you reading it yourself pardon you got to read it your, you got to read it no, yourself no i'm not <laughs> reading it myself someone someone <laughs> no, Keith Ranieri, Keith Ranieri couldn't. Uh, I wouldn't want Keith Ranieri, Keith Ranieri to do voiceover for anything. You could smell him through the but, audiobook. Uh, <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, but uh, any anyway, uh, the the book Cults Inside Out is a compendium of his, the modern history of cults, uh, how they operate, how they manipulate, how people are deprogrammed or through interventions freed from these groups, their stories, and also uh, how do you deal with someone that you love and you care about that becomes involved in a cult? And and for those who have left, how do you recover? Uh, The book has more than 1,000 research footnotes and an 18-page bibliography, so there's a lot there. How big big is the book? How many pages are we talking? (laughs) Almost 600. That's a big book. yeah, it's a it it took it took me a couple years to put it together, and uh, and I I find that if people start at the beginning and read through it, it can almost be used as a tool to deprogram yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Mark Vince, Mark Vicente, for example, used it in that way, and Catherine Oxenberg used it as kind of a handbook, a manual on getting her daughter out of Nexium. And uh, I can tell you, I don't want to be a spoiler, but I met India Oxenberg for the documentary Seduced, and she's doing great. That's fantastic. Uh, She's really, really doing well. That's great. Yeah, and I do look forward to watching Seduced as well. I've only you know seen the vow, but that that'll be uh, you know a nice companion to uh, to the vow, I think. So I'm excited to watch that. And uh, man, thank you so much. This has been fabulous, and uh, I hope to have you on again at some point. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. Thank you, Omar and Elizabeth and Seth. We didn't get to talk that much, but I'm around. hey, I'm around. <laughs> you're there. I'm here. Thank you for, for being a part of today's conversation. Until next time. All right. Thank you. We're off live. Oh, that was great. Live. That was incredible. And yeah, Ugh. I didn't need to talk. That was excellent. <laughs> I mean, I kind of felt um, the same way. <laughs> I've got to like, I'm going to let Chris and, and Omar do their thing. I've watched most of these documentaries, but I mean, the, this was just, this was good. So thanks. I was eight. tongue-tied when I had opportunities to talk because I was listening to you. And so I was like, I had a question, but then like, I'd get like, you'd say something else that would spark something. And I'm like, man, I just wanted to keep having this conversation. It was just, <laughs> you did. 
By by the way, there's another documentary that's really good. I'm in it very briefly. I never knew I was in it until I actually watched it. <laughs> uh, and, and it's 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 called Holy Hell. Ooh. Ooh. Holy Hell. I'll type that down. And it's a and it's 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 on Netflix. And it is another one of these documentaries that's done with historical footage from a former member. And he he was the videographer like uh, uh, Mark Vicente for this group, uh, this guru, uh, kind of a new agey meditation group. And uh, the guy was really, really bad. And he hurt a lot of people. Uh, he sexually exploited members, etc. So they have all this archival video, and then that's married by the actual videographer who 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 directed and produced the documentary, and he then goes all the way to current time, and then he interviews a lot of the ex-members that you see in the videos, and they give their retrospect on what it was like to be in the group, how I got out, what it's like for me now. And then at the end, he actually confronts the cult leader wow. in, uh, on a beach in Hawaii. Wow. Oh my gosh. Where, 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 where he's suffering with his suntan lotion. Oh. And, and, still, and still, still some of the people that you saw from the old videos are with him. Wow. And uh, it, it's just a very moving documentary. It's called Holy Hell. I, I will definitely check that I wrote out. It down Do you know where that's at? <laughs> Netflix. And what was the name of the he group that they were in? Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, it's on Netflix. I cannot remember the name of the group, but the leader was was fixated on me. And he believed after he saw the news with the Waco Davidians and he saw me on, on television, he, he said, this guy is going to get me. <laughs> He's out to get me. And, and then he moved the group from Texas to California and I never even knew the knew the group existed. Wow! <laughs> and so, uh, but but you'll see me very briefly as this uh, uh, evil nemesis that the group believed was after them, That's and they great. show a clip of me on some television show. And you had no idea they existed. I had no idea that wow. you talked great. about the Moonies as well. It's so crazy. I never even knew that the Moonies existed until I had a student. I'm a teacher until I had a student in my class who was part of the Moonies today. Like he still is part of the Mooney cult. Like they have. Oh, it's a it's it's a cash cow. It's I mean, Reverend Reverend Moon's kids are yeah. raking in the cash from them. Yeah, and they've got they've been liquidating some of his old uh, investments and kind of rearranging things. Uh, now I I think they're over a billion. Is what is what their the empire is worth? That's incredible. I should ask they, you. But they can. I'm sorry. I was going to say they they control about half of the wholesale sushi business in wow. in New York, Chicago, and I think Los Angeles. Holy shit! <laughs> yeah, yeah, big business. Yeah. which was built which, which was built basically with slave labor Jeez. of the members of the Unification Church. Wow. Yeah. I should ask you. LA. I should ask you about this when we were. Uh, live earlier but we we actually had another uh guest I forget what number it was but have you ever heard of the house of yahweh oh yeah yeah i have i've i've te i've testified against them in court and i did a documentary for a and e called cult mind control and in that documentary i actually went with hidden camera and microphone 
into the compound of the house of Yahweh. And at one point, one of the leaders recognized that I was there for something other than, uh, you know, listening to them. And, it, it, and he said, who are you? And at that point, my team that was in a van that was working with me on the documentary, they peeled into the compound, picked me up, and we made it out of there by just the shortest amount of time before the security for the house of Yahweh came out. Oh my gosh. And we ended, but, but it was, uh, that was, yeah. I wish I would ask you that when we were live, but we're still recording now. So yeah, that group is led by this weird guy whose given name, given name is Buffalo Bill Hawkins. (laughs) And he, he now goes by the name Yisrael Hawkins. He's a multimillionaire from the group lives like a king typical he's predicted the end of the world i've lost count how many times and it was when i was in the compound i was talking to one of the top leaders under hawkins and by the way they all take the last name hawkins all of them they're all these hawkins people in the house of yahweh and so i'm talking to this guy and 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 he's they have this prophecy the doomsday is going to come in a few months from the time I'm in the compound. And I look, look and I said to him, well, what if uh, that day comes and it passes and nothing happens? Then what are you guys going to do? And he says, well, he says, I think that that is uh, not the prophet's fault. The prophet has said what God wanted him to say. Oh, yeah. And he's done the bidding of God. And if God decides not to have the end of the world at that time, uh, that is God's choice. And I looked at him and said, gee, I'd, I've read the Bible and I don't think it goes. That <laughs> <right>. <laughs> I think, I think, I think, I think it goes like this in Deuteronomy. If a prophet makes a prediction once and it is failed, he's supposed to be stoned to death. Oof. Now, now I'm not saying that everybody should get we should start, post, start posting throwing. that Bible verse on like the pastor's <laughs> stuff yeah, that, yeah. That, 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 that said Trump was going to be president. <laughs> and so so at that point he looked at me and said who are you oh, man. Well, wow. who are you and and then and then the next thing i i, I gotta go time to go <laughs> wow. i got got out of there i mean it was kind of scary yeah the guy that we had on he he was in there for like what almost like two decades and yeah he actually was the one i guess who preached the message that originally about um the idea of having more than one wife or something like that. Right. So, and, and yeah. he, he says that he was used in that way, but he, he took on like another wife while he was there as well. And he was still the, married the to guy, the second one. The, the guy was very open and very honest and really wanted to try to like help as much as possible. He, he kept saying that that's going to be like the next Waco. He's like, things like we, people need to be paying attention wow. to that a little bit more, but. Hawkins Hawkins likes his Cadillac. Yeah. He likes his life. I I don't think I think Hawkins is a con man. I think he knows he's a liar and uh I don't I don't see him as a David Koresh kind of guy. I think he'll just die and then uh, boy you you know in the documentary that I did uh we had his ex-wife mm. on and boy, she could really make the paint peel. <laughs> I mean, she, she, she was really seriously angry. Uh, I think he's just going to keep conning people until he keels over. He must be in his 80s now. 
And yeah. so it won't be it won't be long until he's gone. And then I it'll be interesting to see what happens to the group after the leader dies, because a lot of these groups, they disintegrate after the leader dies, though, if there's enough money, there's motivation for somebody to step up and say, hey, I'm the new prophet. You know, P R O F I T. Yeah. That's the way it works. Uh-huh. All right. Well, you've been very generous with your time. Uh, Thank Rick, you. And let Thank you, you, you so okay. enjoy the rest of your day, man. All right. Yep. All right. You too. Take care. Thanks. Thank you, Rick. Take care, guys. Thank you, Rick. He slayed Best it. episode ever. <laughs> Man, oh man, that was Rick Allen Ross, and I was so excited to talk to that guy. My God, I was excited. (laughs) Felt like an idiot. Good Lord, I sound stupid. Uh, Rick, could you please tell me about Colts? (laughs) God, I feel like an idiot. But you know what? That That dude is intelligent. That dude is freaking cool. He worked with fucking David Koresh, for God's sake. Like, who else can say that? Like, I went and met with him and tried to, you know, get him to fucking give up the cult. You know, and then of course he didn't like, my God, what a credential that guy has. Not only is he intelligent, he's a lot of fun and he's willing to work with people. He genuine, genuinely cares about people. And, you know, if you listen to his his first story, um, you know, it all stems back to his grandmother and how she was approached by a cult. And so he he knows what the damage can do to families and seen it firsthand and was touched by it. So. Dude's, dude's a great guy. Um, definitely, if you yourself or one of your loved ones are, have been touched or experienced uh, a cult, whether it was, um, like I said, maybe you've uh, woken up from uh, realizing Q wasn't the answer or and you want to come tell your story, we're, we're, we're welcome to, to have you here for that. Um, or if you've been touched inappropriately <laughs> by a cult. <laughs> that, that m- most cults do touch you inappropriately in one way or another, that's for sure. Um, but please uh, reach out to us at Podcast at gmail.com, um, and we'll get your story and get you on the podcast. We're also thinking about doing a series on the purity culture movement. Yes, sir, we are. And if you have a story about that, reach out to us. Uh, cause we're definitely going to, uh, try to start getting stories on that. And that's going to be interesting too. We got a lot of really cool things happening over at fade to gray. Uh, we do have a merch store that if, if you like fade to gray and you want to support us, merch is uh, one of the best ways to do it. Uh, we'll put the uh, link in the show notes. It's a store frontier. Sick merch. Uh, oh my God. I'm wearing one of the shirts right now and I look fucking pimp. Actually I am too. And- <laughs> Truth be told, <laughs> but that's half my wardrobe. So <laughs> That aren't workshops. And uh, and we also, of course, have a Patreon. Uh, it's patreon.com slash fade to gray podcast, I believe. Yes, and I believe the Store Frontier is Store Frontier slash FTG Network. And we really appreciate you guys listening. Um, really appreciate the community that we have around Fade to Gray, the stories that we get about people that reach out, talking about uh, whether it's questioning their own faith um, or you know, some of the other hard topics that, that we've not afraid to tackle. Um, we live in some very polarizing times, um, especially now where it's either black or white, or it seems like red or blue, but, um, you know, it's, we're living in the purple or living in the gray. I love purple. Living in the gray. Me too. Purple and gray are like such a perfect match together too. I think they're it's, great colors, <laughs> aesthetically pleasing, easy on the eye. 
<laughs> so, so yeah, um, we love you. Um, thanks for your support. Thanks for, you know, I want more support. I need you to go and get a goddamn shirt from store frontier that says fade to gray on it. Come on, support us. Put your money where your mouth is. You've been listening to this podcast for how long and you haven't done anything to support us? Come on. Chris needs more support. He's going for his second master's right now. So help put Chris through school. <laughs> no, we, we do we do appreciate you. I mean, every little bit helps. But uh, getting the word out, the really the biggest thing you can do if right now even just like hit the five-star like button if you have not done that before Ooh. or review or, rec- or ah. recommend us to some friends anything like that would be very helpful but um yeah monetary support or um, we do have some pretty sick merch um some hats uh some mask you know it's uh we have biden as president so you know mask up bitch so <laughs> <laughs> two masks at least and an anal swab so oh my god <laughs> yeah and if uh you know if you want to hear some from somebody who really supports us listen to this next commercial yeah peace <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha.